0: Ladies and gents, if you please welcome to the stage to conduct the Q&A, journalist Katrina Perry and our special guest this evening, Ambassador Samantha Power. Thank you.
1: all very much for that very warm round of applause um, I hope you enjoyed the film there it's really quite an endeavor in, in documentary filmmaking I think um, Ambassador Power we saw you at the end there taking down your son's artwork or your daughter's perhaps
2: scoring and, yeah. and making a yeah, basket yeah.
1: <laughs> 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 yeah let that not go uh, un- we did you do
2: about 40 <laughs> takes to get that one just just so
1: but we might start there with that final night. I mean, this documentary was filmed from late 2015 until sort of 3, 4 a.m. on almost a year ago, January 20th, the mm. early hours of that morning before President Trump was sworn in. And you're taking down the artwork and you say, you made some comments that you were in this for the long haul, that you weren't going to go softly and quietly into the night. Mm. What did you mean by that?
2: Um, well, first of all, thank you to the IFI for doing the Dublin premiere, the Ireland premiere, uh, maybe even the European premiere. Um, we're really, uh, the filmmakers are thrilled that this is happening, and I'm thrilled to have so many family members here. I'm just going to do a little shout-out. Go first, yeah. So Burke, really. <laughs> this is why it's sold out, by the way, just by my, my family. The Burke I'm family <laughs> is here in, in mass, including my father, uh, Edmund Burke, uh, the Gibsons are in the house, the Mitchells, the Horgans. That's why there's so much applause. There. Exactly, yeah. Actually, I was expecting a little more. You know, the family, I mean, if not this, then what? Um, and uh, the Dawsons and Susan Teigen. Um, I'm just really thrilled to be able to, to be here with, with you all and then with those of you I don't yet know. Um, so that night, yeah, I, I mean, between the election in early November and my ill-conceived election night party Um, and January 20th you know I I I wanted so desperately for uh, time to slow down you know I just I wanted I'm sure you did many of you did too you know I just wanted us to have more time and I think even though the film accurately captures our fundamental misreading of Trump's power and and reach and prospects I mean, I think that that's very accurate. Uh, Ben's, you know, sort of denial. Um, me having that election night party with 37 women ambassadors, Gloria Steinem, Madeline Albright. You know, if I thought it was 50/50, I would have probably just, you know, huddled at home with my kids and my and my husband. Um, so it it the film captures that well. But one thing that I think I'm, I'm proud of in retrospect is that we raced through that year as if we didn't know. So so we thought we knew, we were kind of, as citizens, confident, but we, for instance, scrambled to bring the Paris Agreement into force. Not just, it was negotiated the prior year in December, as you know, in Paris in in 2015, but Kyoto took nine years uh, to bring into force. Now, why? Because there was, you know, even if Trump was only 20% likely to win, as my husband likes to tell me, Things that are 20% likely happen 20% of the time, <laughs> unfortunately. And um, and so that matters because now that Trump is dismantling uh, and trying to get us out of Paris and undoing so many of our environmental regulations, um, at least the Paris Agreement stays in effect because it's actually entered into force as a treaty obliging countries like India, China, and ultimately creating a home for us to come back to. In terms of me and, and the activation, I mean, I... We all sort of have a rude awakening, you know, you can exist in a a kind of hermetically sealed policy world, which is hard enough to figure out how to help the Syrians or um, how to negotiate the Paris Treaty. But it's all about politics as to whether any of those policies come into force or whether they stick. And so my emphasis and those of, I think, Ben and Susan, some of the others that you've seen, is it's a dirty business but raising money for for friends of mine and colleagues of mine from the government that are running for office with our eyes set on november of this year not waiting you know three more years um in order to in in very very dramatic technicolor uh form repudiate what trump has done uh this first year and what he will continue to do for the next uh, 11 months prior to that election. So it does, it's not my area of expertise. I'm not a political person fundamentally. Um, my, my one experience on a political campaign ended in disaster. <laughs> I had to resign the Obama campaign because I lost my temper being Irish. And uh, <laughs> so I'm not exactly, you know, this is not my world, but there's no other way. You know, we can tell ourselves that there's some door number two, there's no door number two. Uh, it's politics, politics, politics. We have to get rid of this individual who's not fit for this office and the the people who enable him and and surround him. And and a halfway house to that, again, is to to put in place a check and balance that hasn't existed this first year, which is a House of Representatives uh, that will make it harder for him to get legislation through.
1: The director, Greg Barker, said, having observed you all, that he felt, I suppose particularly yourself and Ben Rhodes, who had been there from the campaign dedicated to Barack Obama, that he felt you had rallied behind the man, the cause, and you were setting out to change the world. Do you think you did manage to change the world?
2: Well, whether we changed the world in an enduring way, I think that's, you know, certainly been called in, into question by uh, what Trump is doing. Um, but one of the things that Barack Obama did is he challenged a number of taboos in American politics and in diplomacy. I mean, I don't know if, if this would be well known here, I suspect it would be, because you all are so well informed about American politics, but you know, if you said to somebody in 2008, um, you know, Obama may open up a channel to Cuba, to normalize relations with the Cuban. Now, which would in this country and all around the world would be a no-brainer, like to open up a, cha- a channel, see what's possible, probe after, you know, a half a century of making no progress the other way. I mean, it's, it's just very obvious. But if you had said that in, in America, by and large, you'd have been told Florida will secede. You know, the the, the country will fall apart. It'll bring down his presidency, you know. and. And so something like that, where even though Trump has taken away a number of the regulations that Obama put in place, does anybody think that the Cuba embargo will be in place in five years? Like No. So, so this is one of those examples where the pendulum, Trump's algorithm for everything is, what was Obama for? And let me do exactly the opposite of that. But that taboo has been broken. A constituency now exists that is vocal and unafraid in a way that I think is very important. I think the Iran deal is another good example of that. The decision is still pending, of course, uh, as to how much, um, uh, you know, the extent to which Trump is going to uh, walk away from that and and, and and undermine it to an extent that the Iranians themselves walk away. That's the big fear. Um, but again, the taboo around even talking to Iran. You know, I was America's representative at the UN. I, I We had a diplomatics context policy where I was not allowed talk to my Iranian counterpart.
0: How is that
2: productive in light of the fact that Iran is making, uh, wreaking havoc in places like Syria, uh, you know, detaining Americans, etc. cetera. So um, all of those, I, I think that the, the, the aperture for the next responsible Republican president or Democratic president is going to be much wider because of what Obama did. And then the mere fact, I think, of being uh, an African-American uh, president, uh, having broken through that glass ceiling it really has by definition, is that the amazing photo of that little boy? You all know it's an iconic photo now. You know, feeling Obama's head. You know, when Obama leans over, and you know, the the exchange is is so important. It was the the boy just not being able to believe that somebody who had hair like his could be president of the United States. Um, so even that alone, uh, the symbolism of Obama, the integrity of of the way he approached the office, there's a sort of classiness to that that I think is is also even though Trump has gone very much in the opposite direction, to say the least, uh, especially this week with the new revelations, uh, we have a very different model uh, of leadership. But, um, but nonetheless, that bar is there, as Ben said, there's a template, uh, I think, that's important.
1: You mentioned there Syria. That was obviously one of the major foreign policy issues that you had to deal with at the UN. And we saw you say, you know, you went to bed thinking about it and woke up thinking about it. Do you regret that you left before any resolution came about? I mean, I can imagine. I, I
2: yes, of course. Um, I also think, you know, in a way that probably doesn't get can't get full shrift in this film, which is not a policy film. It's more trying to pull up the curtain on the experience in a way of doing these jobs. But um, but I think the, the the harms caused by Syria, which start above all with the with the families whose lives have been or taken uh, in Syria, but extend much further to it being a place where ISIS was able to establish a a foothold um, that then, of course, swallowed up much of Iraq um, in this caliphate, which mercifully has now been uh, dismantled. Um, But then the knock-on effects of refugees flowing into neighboring countries, and then the dam bursting and the, the population flow uh, into Germany and into, in, into Greece and, and Germany and then onward, I mean, would we have Brexit if not for, you know, if we had figured out, if we had cracked the code on Syria, if we had found a way if not to end the conflict, which was arguably overdetermined with so many uh, actors in the region supporting their proxies and so forth, but even just to stem the bleeding you know, to have found some way to create a safe haven in some part of the country or to um, some navigable patches of land where people could have found refuge uh, within their own land, their own territory. You know, would we would, if we had done that, would there be Trump? I mean, the extent to which migration and immigration... Uh, became such a galvanizing issue, even more than the economy. If you look at what the number one voting issue was, you know this better than I do, having just written a book on this, but... Um, Thank you for the book. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Um, uh, but, but the extent, and again, we, we, which we, I think, were not uh, aware of enough, but the extent to which immigration, migration, uh, you know, which was played upon and preyed upon by, by demagogues in England for Brexit and, and in the U.S., uh, Trump. So yes, regret. It. But but don't. By the same token, don't. Can't tell you, you know. If Obama had only listened to yeah. me at that meeting when I made that brilliant argument, yeah. you know, then that would be that. I mean, it was so complex.
1: I I mean, More than there, anything we dealt with. There was obviously the red line issue that he drew that red line, and then walked away from it. Cause. Yeah. Well, the red line
2: is also, again, everything's grays when yeah. you're, when you're. It, which isn't to say there's not right and wrong, um, but it's just, you have to, to understand the context and then with that context to make those right and wrong judgments. But on the red line, it was, you know, Obama came out, said he was going to use force uh, in the wake of this horrific uh, chemical weapons attack. I was, I had been in my job as UN ambassador, my dream job, I had just been confirmed by the Senate. And I had expected my Senate confirmation to, to take a long time because I had written a lot and said a lot um, that was not all that diplomatic. And for whatever reason, I, I managed to move very briskly, unusually briskly, through the process. But what that meant was I had calculated that I would be in my job a bit later, so I planned a family vacation to come to Kerry, to Waterville, to be with my aunt, uncle, Derek, Patricia, and, um, and their family. And so, my husband and I and my two small children were there and we, we arrived um, to Waterville and the very next day we got word that 1,500 Syrians had been gassed. And Obama had declared the, the red line, you know, almost a year before, I believe, and, and there had been a number of smaller attacks, but this was just grotesque and, and heartbreaking. And um, so I spent this, you know, my, when my kids were very small, I think my son was four and my daughter was one. But spent this time you know handing my kids to my completely dysfunctional husband uh, you know saying take care of them while i'm I go into this kind of secure tent you know with these uh secure communications equipment to talk to obama and figure out what we're going to do and so as you so the two red line moments one was the original don't use it or else and then there was the when they used in that way him coming out and saying we're gonna use force but he looked at the targets that we had in Syria. We could not hit any chemical weapons facilities, and, and Assad had vast stores of, of chemical weapons. Um, if we did, there'd be a plume, and we could you know, kill even more people by virtue of trying to make the world better, so that's not something you want to do. So the targets were, were you know, in a way, designed almost symbolically to hit, not get involved in some big war a la Iraq, uh, but to hit these targets in order to deter him from using this weapon again, which doesn't make for a great bumper sticker, right? Because it, there's all these other weapons that he's going to use with, with arguably equal savagery. And so Obama looked at it and he thought, you know, this could take longer than a couple months. Um, and in our country, if you go beyond the 60 days within your constitutional authority, you need congressional authorization. So he said, I got to go to Congress. And it was so typical, unfortunately, of the polarization in our country, which persists, that there were so many of the Republicans who had been you know, denouncing Obama and the rest of us for being so feckless on Syria for not using force, as soon as Obama came out and said he was going to use force, they were like, "Whoa, well, uh, we're not for that. Um, and when we went to Congress to seek that authorization, we basically were, were told we were not going to get it at that point. Putin stepped forward and said, hey, you know, how'd you like to dismantle the chemical weapons program together? And which puzzles me a little bit, because it's almost as if Putin, for all of his vast surveillance and technical capacities that we've become intimately familiar with in light of his assault on our democracy, but it was almost like he wasn't, he didn't have a good whip count in terms of how we were going to do on the use of force resolution, because that, that Overture, which I then had to negotiate with the Russian ambassador in New York into a resolution to dismantle the program, um, you know, came about because of what we thought was the credible threat of force, but it, at that point was actually not all that credible because of Congress's resistance. So in any event, a good came out of it in that we got rid of the declared chemical weapons program. Assad, of course, kept a store of this um, savage uh, weapon poison. Uh, on hand and has used subsequently, but I think, nonetheless, I mean, all of those tons that virtually the entire program being dismantled is a positive thing that came out of this red line moment, but I think, sure, we could look back and ask, had we gone forward and hit those targets or expanded the target list, that carries with it all the risks of war, which, which you know, our wars haven't gone that well, uh, by and large, America's wars. Um, Uh, But had we done it, maybe it would have shifted a tectonic plate and we could have come in on the back of that and and launched a diplomatic initiative, because fundamentally, that war was never going to be won militarily. It was always going to have to end at the negotiating table.
1: You mentioned that all started while you were in Waterville with your children. and Obviously, you're a proud American, but you're a proud Irish woman as well. And we saw you speaking very emotionally during the film there um, at that citizenship ceremony. Do you think being an immigrant has helped you at the UN, even around the cabinet table, that you can put forward that view of the other?
2: I, well, I think, so. I mean, who knows, right? We're all a combination of stuff that just, you know, takes form. Uh, so it, it, it's hard to do the kind of causal thing. But when I look at Obama, one of the things that was amazing to, to get to work with him for those years was. I'm sure unlike just about any president we've ever had, even the great ones like Roosevelt. Um, But he would, you know, in our Iran negotiations, he'd say, well, you know, if I'm Rouhani, here's what I'm thinking. You know, and he would just, he did such a masterful job of putting himself in the shoes of other people, and he would do that with Congress as well. Uh, If I'm Mitch McConnell, um, you know, so uh, sometimes... Uh, you know, but that, and that doesn't always buy you what you seek. You know, you want to understand someone's worldview, their interests, their calculus, their cost-benefit. Um, and I think I had that at the UN. I, could, I, I, I did have the ability, I just, I mean, partly just through listening, but to try to understand how other countries saw the United States. And, and Obama gave me great license to meet people where they were. So, for instance, you know, if I went and met with the ambassador from Laos, I don't think there's been an American ambassador, or at least maybe Ambassador Rice, my, my predecessor with Obama had this privilege also, but prior to our administration, the ability to just apologize you know, for the munitions that were still causing amputations and, and injury in Laos. And, and the, uh, the ability, when talking about Russia's outrages in Ukraine, to acknowledge the war in Iraq and not to pretend as though history just starts for the United States when some new leader takes office, you know, as if we get you know, like, okay, and, and this is, we're really gonna have to keep in mind after, after Trump, Lord knows. But you know, I think that just, just you know, knowing, it's almost you know, ground testing uh, your, your ideas or your prescriptions uh, with your family, with people who live abroad, with your friends abroad who also lived abroad in the former Yugoslavia, you kind of just know what passes muster and and it's just a weird tendency in government generally but in big institutions uh, of all kinds to just talk at people uh, rather than you know having the perspective that, that, that again you would have if you were them and so whether that's because you're an immigrant or because you're a woman you know people say these are these are gendered uh, traits I think is a huge asset in diplomacy so even negotiate with my Russian counterpart who I spent half my time in the film, um, you know, condemning and so forth. But, you know, I, in order to get, for instance, a, a mechanism set up at the UN that didn't exist to actually ascertain who used chemical weapons or in order to get more humanitarian aid into people in Syria who were trapped in besieged areas, I had to put myself in my Russian counterpart's shoes. And I had to imagine what would it be like to have Vladimir Putin as my boss. And I had to imagine how, if I were Vitaly, how would I sell what I'm trying to do with Samantha in terms that would appeal to, to Putin? And, and so even though none of this is visible because the, the, the failure to help the Syrians is so much more dramatic than these modest successes, uh, nonetheless, we wouldn't have even been able to do what we did but for the ability to, to walk in each other's shoes. And I, certainly that's the measure of a good diplomat.
1: I think we got a sense of the work you did in particular. Well, I felt when you were trying to cajole the Saudi oh, yeah. ambassador into not the, go to it, it will the shock army. you to hear that yeah. he did not. <laughs>
2: yeah. But that scene actually went on for another ten minutes. It looks then, like, like yeah, it does me. look
1: like That's it a went cut. a while. <laughs> yeah, it went longer even. Um, you say there that you, you none of you, or, or you and Ben in particular, didn't didn't see this coming, and we saw that. And I think particularly how Ben Rhodes looked like someone had punched him That's in the chest, in the movie, I mean, right? yeah, That's he couldn't the string the words together.
2: And he never is without words. Never,
1: never, yeah, I, I've never seen him <laughs> like that, actually. But, um, you know, earlier before election night, he he mentioned in one scene that um, the divisiveness and the rhetoric coming from the Donald Trump campaign, he felt he was already starting to see the impact mm. of that around the world. We're a year in now, I mean, is, yeah. is that... Have you seen that carrying forward? Are you know in terms of the work that you would have done was so international facing?
2: Well, I mean the damage being done is the damage, right? The obvious damage. Look at the America's standing in the world. Uh, the Gallup poll that came out yesterday shows, for the first time, I think in the post-war period, uh, China has a higher standing in the world uh, than the United States. You know, it's dropped in most countries forty, fifty percentage points. I think the lone exceptions are. Israel and Saudi Arabia. Um, and, uh, and so there's that. And then there's the damage of just the cruelty of what it would mean to be a Muslim, whether a Muslim Irish person or a Muslim American or a Muslim anywhere in the world. And to have such vitriol and such collective guilt and a set of ascriptions you know, given to you, I mean, you know, that's just, dead. that's hurt. Um, You know, that's hurt that is done every day. And then there's the hurt of actually closing off your borders and not taking refugees, not taking one single Syrian refugee at a time when the crisis we now see in Idlib, 200,000 people displaced in the the offensive that's going on right now, and not carrying our share. And then there's dismantling the rules of the road that have, you know, not been perfectly observed, to say the least. over the last 70 years, 70 plus years, but have maintained a certain stability. The alliances, I mean, the fact that we show more affection for people like Duterte in the Philippines who are uh, you know, basically carrying out mass murder against people loosely affiliated, uh, or, or you know, just happen to be wrong place, wrong time. And you know, such warm words for, for President Xi in China and, and by, by Donald Trump for President Putin. And then, you know, trashing Angela Merkel, um, you know, I mean, it just, so there's that damage. But then there's a a larger challenge that all of us will have to face in the States, which is we are the country who elected Barack Obama to two terms and the country that elected Donald Trump somehow, the man who said he was gonna do all of the things that he's now doing. I mean, he's been remarkably true for all of his lying, which is another feature of his presidency that's, um, unusual. Um, but he's actually, you know, said he was going to do a set of things and, and everyone hoped, including me, that the office would civilize him and that our allies would, uh, would rein him in. Um, but instead, again, he's, 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 he carried out a, a major rupture from, from a lot of the bipartisan practices of successive presidents. So. Our cha- the challenge to the, the international order, generally, to democracies, even like this one, and to the United States, will be that this, the shadow of this, the specter of having elected this person, is something that will persist. And so, we will always have been the country that elected this man who said he would do these things. and. You know, this kind of constituency in the U.S., as you know from, from you know your time in the States, has existed for a long time. We used to have a party in the U.S. called the Know-Nothing Party. I mean, that was, you know, capital K, uh, capital N party. Um, we had Joe McCarthy, who had, you know, roughly the, the kind of support that Trump shows in his base when he was doing the, the horrific things that he was doing, fear-mongering and, again, creating divisions among citizens. We have, That constituency. Now we also have all of the magical things that that make America a country worth crying over like I did in the movie, you know, and that all of you, I'm sure, have gravitated toward, but we're both and the salience of the Trump uh, effect, I I think is going to be something very hard to to shake free of. Moreover, other presidents who the world may not have loved or liked even um, have respected the commitments made by their predecessors, to think through what will it be like when, let's say, you know, someone comes into my shoes and is, or Nikki Haley's shoes, and becomes UN ambassador and seeks to negotiate, you know, something really important. Let's say the end of the Syrian war, and let's say there's some American role in that. Well, why would the other stakeholders believe that that's something that, you know, potentially the next president would, would live by now that we've uh, withdrawn from so many of these frameworks? So. You know we're going to have some talking to do, (laughs) but what I will say, just because it could bring, you know, this could be all a big downer, is that you know Trump is being blocked in powerful ways, blocked by the courts, blocked by his own party. He'd love to just you know have a major. We saw that with
1: Obamacare, didn't we? Efforts to repeal it, exactly. With Obamacare,
2: but also on gerrymandering, which has distorted our politics so much. But on Putin, he would love to, you know, just be BFF with, with Putin. That's what he's always wanted. And, uh, and, you know, deliver on whatever quid pro quo may or may not have existed. And he can't. His party won't let him. Um, transgender people can't be expelled from our military because our courts won't allow that to happen. So part of what we will say three years hence, if or sooner, um, is, is that there were two Americas operating even during this time. There was an America that wanted to go in these um, uh, very disturbing directions and and indeed did a fair amount of damage. But then there was another America where the checks and balances kicked in and where at the earliest possible occasions, American voters repudiated what they were seeing from Trump. And that that means all the special elections that we've had this year, um, especially the more recent ones, which are showing 35 percentage point swings, you know, districts that went, 16, 17, 20 percentage points for Trump, now going 15 percentage points for Democrats who haven't won in 20, 30 years in those areas. So, so in very small ways, we're already seeing the resistance you know, concretely taking hold, but, but that's why November matters so much.
1: Well, I think we'll, we have time for a couple of questions from the audience. Uh, first hand up is this gentleman in the middle in the red jumper. We'll get a microphone too if you just, get a type there.
0: Uh, You can hear me? Yes, you can. I wanted to ask about the Iran deal. Um, So you talked about three years hence. A hypothetical future administration, Uh, we propose uh, imagining a president who's pro-JCPOA, but you're not going to have an administration, let's say, including Samantha Power. You're not going to have an administration maybe with uh, Javad Zarif or John Kerry or Dennis McDonough or Hassan Rouhani. What are the steps? that really need to be taken in order for the Iran deal to pass the values test within America's current culture? What are the steps that really need to be taken for that deal in order for there to be a sense of belonging and a sense of ownership within American politics and perhaps even within a wider framework of understanding of that deal's legitimacy in an international community? How, how is that deal going to become uh, renewed? And particularly, I'm thinking of this in context of the recent protests.
2: Um, it's a complex question and I, and I want to make sure we, we uh, get a range of uh, reactions to the film and other things out there, but um, I, I think for starters, we don't know what's going to happen in this administration and if the same GOP that controls the Senate and the House and has denounced this deal from the outset, uh, not supporting it, all, it at all in any of the votes that um, Republicans conjured up when we were in office. But if Trump does what he has done so far, which is in effect throw it to Congress, and they do not dismantle the deal, um, there's, there's um, perverse, but there's kind of ballast in that. There's, there's a stickiness to that. Now it's not what you're talking about, which is broader legitimacy. A broader legitimacy, we're open to ideas. It's really hard because the deal is flawed. Of course it's flawed. We're negotiating with the mullahs. <laughs> um, uh, and it doesn't cover the the repression inside Iran. It doesn't cover Iran's support for terrorist groups uh, and other actors like the Houthi in Yemen. Uh, it doesn't cover any of that stuff. So, so if you're an American or or citizen of the world, you see all that it doesn't cover and you don't uh, imaginatively, um, you struggle to imagine the war that isn't happening, right? You're comparing the flaws of the deal um, to a non-occurrence, to a dog that's not barking. So it's very, very challenging, but I think what does um, uh, really get at people in the United States more than one would expect, not everybody, again, Trump's base, not at all, but, like a, a solid majority of Americans really hate being isolated in the world. They hated it under George W. Bush in the wake of the Iraq war. And you know, that idea of having no friends, the idea of our closest allies in Europe, you know, saying, "You're walking away from this. You want to renegotiate this? Well, we don't. Um, and we're we're sticking it out. I mean, I think, that the kind of sturdiness to the deal if it can persist in circumstances where America is not fully on board and uh, where Europe sticks to its guns and in this period really finds its voice again. I mean, that might be one, provided the Merkel situation can get resolved and I'm not up to date today on, on what's happening on that, but, but one, you know, well, a couple perverse uh, or, or, or positive collateral effects of Trump, I mean, one, you know authoritarian or populist candidates right very far-right candidates are doing less well since trump's election in europe who knows again a lot of different variables but also maybe europe uh finding its voice on foreign policy and and stepping into a breach in light of america's retreat um not just on the iran deal but on human rights and on international law and the rules of the road more generally
1: okay thank you anyone else there's a
3: lady at the back there. Yeah, you will get a microphone to you if you just hang on a moment. Yeah, keep your hand up there. There we go. Hi, thanks so much, and congratulations to the on the film, which I think is great because it really um, adds to transparency of decision making, which I think is really important for, you know, in order to garner support for those kind of positions you are taking um, during the administration. Um, so I have two questions, which are kind of two sides of the same coin, so if you're ask them. Um, Make them quick. <laughs> okay, okay, so the first is um, pulling just two things you said out of film. First was that um, uh, and you mentioned that in certain things you wanted to try and entrench them so that if the country did take another direction that they would continue. And you mentioned Cuba in the question and answer session. Is there anything else that you feel that you did both, you know, you at a personal level or the administration kind of work on and and entrench to an extent that it it is going to withstand um, any assault by Trump. And the other side of the coin is just, um, you also mentioned these two camps in international relations, the the real politics, let's say, and the idealist side. Um, Would you share with us maybe the most difficult time you had as UN ambassador where your own personal ideals conflicted with your, with your job, the idea, you know, the fact that you had to um, uh, defend something, that, that, that conflict with your ideas. Thanks very much. Great.
2: Okay, just briefly, I mentioned climate. I think that's an example, again, where even though we're a major emitter in the world and need to be at the vanguard of um, clean energy and curbing our emissions, even if we we're ducking out of that role because of uh, Trump's affection for coal and for doing the opposite of what Obama does, um, uh, that that agreement persists, and indeed, our governors, our mayors, um, uh, and and so many of our citizens are are acting as if those commitments are still even binding to our own citizens. So, other countries are, will be in the lead. It won't be our national our federal government, uh, but but I think that's still very important. You know, one example which which doesn't get a lot of attention, but we were able actually with Russia and China somehow and our European friends. To get an excellent Secretary General in place, the former Portuguese Prime Minister, that's something that you know his leadership of the world, which is very hard to do. It's very hard to lead the UN when you don't have a, an American um, uh, driver of initiatives. You know, we, we are we have been for so long the initiator um, uh, of you know coalitions of agreements and so forth. Again, not perfect. You know, Iraq War and all the rest. Um, but now there's just uh, a, a vacuum. So, so his leadership isn't really showing in the way that, that it might, you know, again, if he had if there was more actually happening by virtue of what the countries of the UN were doing. Um, and then I would just say on refugees, uh, we, we, one of the things that we do, it's actually captured in the film. Obama did a big meeting in his last general Assembly with the heads of state on refugees um, to try to get people to, uh, increase their resettlement commitments. We made a much bigger commitment, and, and unfortunately Trump then uh, walked away from that um, and was elected two months after that big meeting. But the other thing we did that's actually in the film is we brought business leaders together and got them to commit to hiring a certain number of refugees or funding things that were happening in the region. And that's the kind of thing, again, that even though our government is a wall, uh, that that uh, the energy and the vibrancy of that is, is still happening. And then very briefly on you, because I think we've already. touched Yeah, on I don't that.
1: think we can get into international relations theory here tonight. No, no, no. Here all night.
2: <laughs> but, but in terms of what was the hardest, I'd say uh, two things. Syria, um, just uh, you know, describe. I mean, it was just so clear that what we were doing, even even if we, nobody had the silver bullet, what we were doing was not working in terms of what we were seeking. Right, as you saw from the film. No matter how hard John Kerry tried, it just we were not cracking the code. And then the one that really sticks out now, especially, is Yemen, because supporting a coalition that can't shoot straight and that is willing to, in effect, try to starve a, a population into submission while, while we are denouncing precisely those practices in Syria, um, that's, that's not good.
1: <laughs> very good. Thank you very much, Ambassador Power, and thank you all for coming tonight. Thank it's you, everybody. Thank you.